Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Look, pay attention now. You really need to see this. Look, see. That's the opening word of the most amazing song in Isaiah about the suffering servant. Martin Luther said this passage ought to be written on parchment of gold and lettered in diamonds. It's that important. And we feel that sense of importance and urgency as we begin by hearing God himself saying, see, as he points to the servant, look at my servant. Written 700 years before Jesus came and walked this blue, green, green, green planet, here by the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself is alerting us to his son, the son who would serve his father in total obedience. So look. And it's crucial that we see him, for when these words were written, God's people were in exile, geographically many miles from home, captive in a foreign land, unable to return to Israel, and therefore unable to gain access to the temple to make sacrifice for their sins, and so unable to return to their God. For it was their sin that had thrust them into exile and out of God's presence. And so now, far away from the temple, they had no way of atoning for their sin. And that is our problem too. And the problem of all mankind, we too are exiles, far away from our God, for we too have sinned. We've ignored the God who gives us everything. We've disobeyed the God who instructs us how to live. We think we know better. We selfishly fail for those in need. We sin in so many ways, and so we too are in exile, estranged from our God. As Isaiah writes in chapter 59, our iniquities have separated us from our God. Our sins have hidden his face from us so that he will not hear us. And so we're trapped, unable to come back into a relationship with God. For no matter how loud we cry, he will not hear us. It's like being locked in an underground soundproof bunker. We can shout all we like and he won't hear us. And we can't escape. We can't escape a life of sin. Anyone who's ever tried to live a good life knows we can't do it. We can't be good. And even if somehow from this point we could live the perfect life We still have a criminal record as long as our arm. And so we're in exile and we can't escape and that leaves us doomed to be separated from our God. Our God who is the source of light and life and everything that is good. And so with that background, just as all hope seems to be fading, our God takes the initiative and says, look, look at my servant. Look, here's the answer to your predicament. And it is found in this one called the servant of the Lord. Verse 13, he's going to prosper. That is a better translation than act wisely. He's going to prosper. He'll succeed in bringing God's people out of exile. And verse 13, do you see it there? He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Now, do you hear that? High and exalted. That is a phrase that is loaded for Isaiah's readers, for that's exactly how the Lord himself was described in chapter 6, as Isaiah was given that great vision. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And now here is this one, this servant of the Lord, given the same lofty position as the Lord himself, high and exalted. This servant then is divine. Here is our hope, a divine servant. But what's this in verse 14? As people look at this high and exalted servant, they are appalled at him. He's so disfigured to the point of repulsion. How can this be? How can we find hope in one so marred that we can't even bear to look at him? Those who first followed him were certainly confused. He didn't appear to be the saviour. As he was falsely accused, convicted by a crooked kangaroo court, roughed up by the guards, beaten to within an inch of his life with a cat of nine tails, a brutal whip of bone and flint causing maximum pain as it lacerated his back. For many, that instrument alone brought them to their death. Jesus did survive it, but only to be mocked and to have a crown of thorns thrust on his head before being led out to crucified, hands and feet nailed to a piece of wood where he was lifted up, high and exalted. This is the enigma of the cross. At the exact moment when he did not look to be prospering, at the very moment when he could not have looked less like a saviour, at the precise time when he could not have appeared to be any less godlike, he was in fact the highly exalted Lord of all, saving the world, bringing us out of exile, back into relationship with our God. For that which caused his marred human likeness was the vehicle through which verse 15 he would sprinkle many nations i imagine that for most of us talk of sprinkling doesn't mean much but for those who knew the levitical law so to sprinkle was to bring cleansing to the sinner it was a way for guilty sinners to be made fit for god's presence In his uh, devotional commentary, Timothy Cross recalls a time from his childhood. He writes, I once returned to the family home after a particularly muddy football match. Covered and caked in mud, the bath was my first point of call. To get to the bath, however, I had to bypass some of my mother's friends who were having a coffee morning in our house. My embarrassment was acute. I was unfit for their presence until I'd cleaned myself up. To be sprinkled is to be completely cleaned up. But don't think of a muddy schoolboy needing a good bath. Rather think of an adulterous wife facing her husband, feeling dirty to the core, embarrassed, stained, filthy, unable to look him in the eye, unfit to be in his presence. Think in those times, in those terms, because that's how Isaiah described his people before God. And that's how we are, souls stained with sin, loaded down with guilt. My, how we need to be sprinkled, to be cleaned up, to be given a deep clean that will remove the stain of sin from my soul. That is what the divine servant of the Lord does for us. So making us fit for God's presence, bringing us out of our exile, 
And when we get it, it leaves us speechless. Even the most powerful in the world are left dumbfounded. Verse 13, kings will shut their mouths because of him. This is the silence of wonder. That jaw-dropping moment when you experience the most breathtaking scenery you've ever fixed your eyes on, a mountain range, a coastline, the stars in the sky, beauty leaving us with sheer wordless wonder. And that, yet greater still, is what we should feel when we look at the cross of Christ. Look, see my servant raised, lifted up and highly exalted on the cross. Chapter 53 of Isaiah in verse 1, the arm of the Lord has been revealed. It's as if the Lord Almighty rolls up his sleeve and as he gets to work, we see his bare arm. And what do you see as the Lord gets to work? In your mind's eye, what picture is conjured up as you think of the almighty Lord of all creation rolling up his sleeves in order to solve the greatest problem in the world? Do you see a strong man? Do you see a Greek god up in the sky hurling down fireballs in his fury? Do you hear mighty thunder and see lightning bolts striking terrified people as they run for their lives like little ants? Well, if that's the image in your mind, forget it. God's own word gives us a completely different picture. It could not be more different or more surprising for when the strong and mighty arm of the Lord is revealed, what we see is, verse 2, a tender shoot, a little seedling. And coming out of dry ground, it doesn't even look well watered. It looks so vulnerable, so helpless. So helpless like a baby. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, wrote Isaiah back in chapter 9. He arrived vulnerable and helpless like a tender shoot. And even then, as he grew up, he was nothing special to look at. Verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was no Hollywood star. Forget the handsome blue-eyed man that the Victorians would have us see. Pass him in a Palestinian street and you wouldn't have given him a second look. Nothing to look at. Wasn't desirable at all. Now, Quite the opposite. All through his life, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Rejected by men, isn't that astonishing? The very one who came to save the human race was rejected by the human race. And not just rejected, but despised. Hated by the very religious leaders who should have recognised him as they read their scriptures. Betrayed by one he'd shared his life with. Deserted by his friends when he needed them most. Scorned by passers-by. He was a man of sorrows, all right. He was all too familiar with suffering right through his life and most acutely at his death. At the cross, he suffered every kind of suffering. An innocent man, he suffered a miscarriage of justice. 
He was emotionally abused. He suffered betrayal and rejection. He suffered physically. He suffered the agony of death. And of course he suffered spiritually as he bore the guilt of the sins of the world and was separated from his father. Oh, he was familiar with suffering, all right. Vulnerable, nothing special to look at, despised and rejected, suffering in every way. And that's where we see the mighty arm of the Lord being bared. It really doesn't look very powerful. It actually looks rather weak and utterly foolish until we read on for in this suffering something very powerful was being accomplished verse 4 surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows verse 5 he was pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each one of us has turned to our own way But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you hear it? Seven times in three verses, Jesus is described as our substitute. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquities deserve punishment. He took it. Our transgressions should see us crushed. He suffered it. Our sins leave us distressed. He bore that distress and brought us peace. At the cross, we see the mighty arm of the Lord bringing salvation through substitution. Through Jesus taking our place. Here is the power of almighty God. And here too is the love of the Lord. For when one takes the place of another, it is an outworking of love. As my dad sat by my mum's bedside watching her suffer and expecting her to die within days, with tears in his eyes, he said to me, I wish I could take her place. For he loved her. He didn't want to see her suffer. He would willingly take her place and take her suffering. Listen to the words of a parent seeing the agony his child is suffering. I want to take the pain from her. A substitution is an expression of love. Here is the power of the almighty Lord of all, bearing his arm, rolling up his sleeves, getting his hands dirty as the divine servant takes our place. And here is love, amazing love. But to many, it doesn't look powerful or loving at all. To many, to most indeed. As Jesus hung there on the cross, all they saw, verse 4, was a man stricken by God. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Scornfully, they shouted, let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. It happened then and it's no different today. The cross appears to be foolishness and weakness. And so the question comes in verse 1, who believes this message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer, to those who look at the cross of the suffering servant and who make it personal, he took up my infirmities, he carried 
my sorrows. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. His punishment brought me peace. By his wounds, I am healed. I've gone astray, but the Lord has laid all my iniquity upon him. What do you do when you're wrongly accused? I'll tell you what I do. I plead my innocence. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. No, no, you've got it all wrong. It was him. Innocent people make their case. They get a lawyer if they need to, to establish all the facts, get the story straight, see that justice is done. But verse 7, Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He didn't say a word. At his trial, the high priest stood up and asked Jesus, what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And why the silence? Well, this was a silence of submission. Jesus was being obedient to his father's will. He, he refused to speak up in his own defense because he knew it was the father's will that he go to the cross. And so what a powerful silence it was. Just think of the power of Jesus' word. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus explained to his disciples that he would only need to say a word and the Father would have sent him 12 legions of angels. That's approximately 72,000 angels. A mighty, powerful, heavenly army at Jesus' beck and call. Just a word and they'd have been there in a shot. With that strength behind him, just one word from Jesus and he could have crushed anyone and everyone around him. So to say nothing was a powerful silence indeed. We often rejoice in the power of God's word and rightly so. But as we look at the passion of the Christ, we should be thankful for this silence. For in this silence was a determination not to prove his innocence, but to go to the cross willingly where he suffered a cruel and violent death. And verse 8 was stricken for us for the transgressions of God's people. He was prepared to be wrongly accused for you and me. At verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, hung up between two criminals, even though he'd never done any wrong. Oh, he really did live the perfect life. End of verse 9, he did no violence. No deceit ever came from his mouth. Can you believe it? No deceit. He was perfect in every way, in word and deed. Even on the cross, the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the human race. Even then, he said nothing. He didn't lash out. said nothing wrong. What he did do was he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was silent about his innocence because, verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. What a remarkable obedience. He knew that he was innocent, yet he knew that he was to be, as it says in verse 10, the guilt offering for sin. Jesus knew of the Father's love for a broken world. 
Jesus knew, though, that a father couldn't just let us off. That wouldn't be just. And so to bring forgiveness to the guilty, to the likes of you and me, the father needed a sinless guilt offering. And so Jesus poured out his life unto death. That's what we read halfway through verse 12. He willingly was obedient to the Father. The innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world became the guilt offering. And that's why he didn't say a word about his innocence. And verse 10, even though he was, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Gloriously, it was also the Lord's will, end of verse 10, that he should prosper. And my, how he prospered. First, his guilt offering brought many children. Verse 10, he will see his offspring. People born again by the Spirit and adopted into God's family, all made possible because of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He has many children all around the world and we see that today here in this building, but then millions around the world. His adopted children worshipping him and today he sees his offspring. Not only those who live, but those who've lived down through the centuries who followed him, a great multitude, more than the grains of sand on the seashore. And he prospered as he bore many children to new birth. And second, he prospered through resurrection. Verse 10, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. On this Good Friday, we don't need to pretend that we don't know how the story ends. We're not like those first disciples standing at the foot of the cross on that first Good Friday, looking up with all their hope, ebbing away before their very eyes. Yes, it's Good Friday, but Sunday's coming. The Lord is risen. After the suffering of his soul, verse 11, he did see the light of life. He was raised from the dead. And in resurrection and then in ascension, Jesus has the victory. He has a portion among the great, verse 12. He is a victorious saviour, like a great warrior, king, verse 12. He divides the spoils of his victory with his people. And so this day, we know that in Jesus we have a sure and certain future. In Christ, we know the king who is enthroned forever and he shares his spoils with us, his people. Sin atoned for, shared with us. Death defeated, shared with us. Reunited with the Father, shared with us. Life and deep satisfaction, shared with us. And all because, verse 12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Hallelujah. What a saviour. 